Nomai Hairimai, Ngapataka Korero, Auckland Libraries in association with Ancestry and Ancestry Pro Genealogists present a special selection of talks honouring New Zealand's military history. So thanks to the Auckland Public Library and to the um, Ancestry for, for the opportunity to to wave my book around and talk a little bit about it um, um, to Shona, to Michelle and, and to Nicholas who uh, made the first contact. And while I'm thanking people, um, I suppose in a way I'm a, I feel a bit of a fraud. I'm not, I'm not a gene genealogist. I'm not a, I'm not even a military historian. So uh, the people who've helped me on those sides of my book, um, I'd just like to mention briefly um, Maureen West, um, Geraldine O'Reilly, and um, Chris Pugsley, who read my New Zealand chapter and gave it a, a thumbs up, I think, from memory. Um, so basically, my story, the book, we were going to, we've launched in Dunedin, we were going to launch, and still will, in Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch, but uh, that depends on the end of the pandemic and the goodwill of the Irish ambassador who's organizing the launches. So, but that will happen in due course. Um, I suppose, my book is a, a, an example of what you can end up with, what you can make out of a myriad of of family stories, of photos, of military records, of, of oral history interviews, um, and supposedly small stories based on essentially the letters that were written home by these five New Zealanders who found themselves caught up in the, the most uh, important event in modern Irish history and how that little um, seemingly small um, piece of evidence can fit into a much bigger picture. So trawling through newspapers, turning over every, every um, rock and following and tracking leads uh, eventually turned into something that the Irish um, Post described in its review as a, a reminder that even well-trodden ground can sometimes yield up new treasures. So the Irish reviews are just coming in but, um, and I suppose some context here is probably uh, useful. The, um, in a sense, you need to put the, 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 this incident in the 1916 rising in context. In New Zealand terms, what I'd say is if you, if you added up women getting the vote first here, uh, Ed Hillary climbing Everest, every all black team that ever was, all combined, the 1916 Rising is bigger than all that in Irish history. Um, wrongly, it's popularly believed that all events before 1916 were leading up to it, and everything that has happened subsequently has stemmed from it. So, in, in short, it's very dangerous ground for an historian to tread, especially a colonial historian. Um, I wouldn't have been seen as an Irish historian, certainly outside the charmed circle of Irish historians. So the orthodoxy for over a century was that Trinity College Dublin, the walled campus in the middle of, of Dublin, had not been attacked, was not attacked by the rebels. So 
um, historians have spent a century chiding them for their failure to do this. The, the, the Trinity College Dublin historian, who's written a, a very large book on, on this subject five years ago, went a step further and denied that there was really any defense of the college. The, the defenders imagined that they had defended this 35-acre campus smack in the middle of Dublin city. So his depiction of Trinity is that not in the British camp, oh no, no, that's a complete misconception. Rather, uh, Trinity College Dublin, the bastion of Protestantism, Unionism, and the Crown was some sort of confused bystander, uh, conflicted uh, and, and confused by the speed of events, almost itself a victim of the rising. So as a, as a New Zealander, um, uh, I was annoyed by his dismissal of the Anzacs uh, achievement in helping to defend the college from a rebel attack. And um, I was also, as a Trinity graduate, pretty much appalled at that attempt blatant attempt at, at revisionism, dragging the, the college, not, uh, not quite into the GPO with the rebel leaders, but certainly leaving it in the middle of Spackville Street as some sort of um, uh, a pitiful um, figure, rather than what it was, a very uh, engaged uh, participant. So what began as a review of that book, um, then turned into a long essay, and it has turned into a, a, a book itself. So cutting to the chase, um, when we launched in Dublin last September, uh, the response on the night and in Irish historical circles since has been incredulity. Who, who were these New Zealanders, these Anzacs? What the hell were they doing there? And why, In the implication is, did they get involved in essentially someone else's quarrel? So it, in, it revealed a gulf in understanding of the, the, the context a hundred years earlier, a very narrow view of the rising, uh, an ignorance of the imperial dimension, and even the global impact of, of that event in Irish, in, uh, in Irish history. So all of that meant that it was a really good opportunity for me to, to um, reverse my usual stance, which has been for the last 30 years standing up in New Zealand audiences telling them how much they owe to the Irish and how the Irish dimension of our history has been disregarded, how sectarianism in New Zealand, which was fairly rife, has been completely and wrongly dismissed by historians in New Zealand as insignificant, uh, largely because they haven't done the research and they've been intimidated by the the overt and visible sectarianism that happened across the Tasman Sea um, and our very narrow understanding of, of ethnic and religious history, but I, I won't get onto that. But what the, the project gave me the opportunity to do was to look at the New Zealand background to explain through the book uh, th that um, colonial, that imperial dimension, and um, I suppose, uh, how deeply involved in the, how deeply invested in the empire New Zealand was, trade, um, um, emotional links very close, and in a sense the fact that New Zealand was this super patriotic, super loyal colony, within a couple of months of the declaration of war, dispatching not one but two expeditionary forces to, to Samoa and to uh, Europe, uh, gave the 
five New Zealanders, whom I will get on to discussing in a minute, it gave them rank, it gave them experience, so that by the time April 1916 came along, of the five Kiwis who were involved in, the, who led the defense of Trinity College Dublin on the Monday and Tuesday, four of them were non-commissioned officers, two corporals, two sergeants. The academics, their putative um, uh, superiors in, who had rank in the officer training corps in Trinity, but who were in fact more comfortable with the, the, the pen than the sword, they were professors of German classics and English respectively, lieutenants and captains though they were, immediately deferred to the Anzacs, to the five New Zealanders and the one Australian who led the other colonial troops who were chased into Trinity College Dublin in the first hours of the rising. Six South Africans, two Canadians, and a hodgepodge of other um, uh, members of a very ramshackle defense force, possibly only 40 or 50 men in that first couple of hours. So um, I'll get on to a little bit, I'll talk about what they did, but I suppose yeah, I'll talk about what they did and then I'll talk about some of the sources I used. I think that's important to, uh, for this audience that they, uh, certainly there's, they, they could be some interest there, but I'll, I'll start off with, with the, the book itself because um, I can read a little bit of it uh, and that will save me having to do this on the hoof or from memory because uh, I spent three years researching and writing the book, but now I'm and getting it published, but now I'm, I've moved on to another project. So I often have to re be reminded of the most obvious facts. So with your um, um, forbearance, I'll read the blurb from the back of the book. Little has been written on Trinity College's role in Easter week, 1916, as a loyal nucleus dividing the insurgents and providing an effective counterweight to rebel headquarters in the GPO, the General Post Office. The college is usually mentioned in the context of the rebels' alleged failure to attempt its capture and its co-option as a barracks in the later stages of the rebellion. This book reveals how five New Zealanders, acting as the core of a small squad of colonial troops, provided a vital shield to protect the from capture. Had the college fallen to the surprise attack launched on it by the rebels at midnight on Easter Monday, the first day of the rising, its 324th year may well have been its last. Nothing less than heavy and prolonged artillery fire would have sufficed to defeat the occupiers. Letters written home by the Kiwi soldiers give fresh insight into important questions of the aspect of the insurrection and help to answer questions left unasked in previous studies. How close did Trinity come to being a central battleground in the rising? How and why did it escape this grisly fate? And not least, what might have happened but for the timely intervention of the colonial troops? So this book puts the, the, the neglected episode into an imperial context with Dublin as a theatre of battle in a global war. So getting on to the sources I used, uh, the letters uh, home sent to the parents and, um, and relatives of the five Anzacs, um, the, the men were um, in hasty memory uh, order, um, Jack Garland from Auckland and uh, McLeod from Wellington, uh, Nevin from Christchurch, Don from 
Dunedin, the son of the uh, noted Presbyterian minister to the Chinese, and my, the one I was forgetting from Auckland, Edward Waring, the only one who, who died not in the war, but just after the war in the flu epidemic. The other four lived quite long lives, and I was able to, to track three of their surviving children, all in their 90s, who provided some very lovely information and tremendous photos, including probably the most exciting one, which is uh, a, a news a clip, a, a still from the newsreel footage of three of the four Anzacs walking across College Green in the immediate aftermath of the rising. Um, so um, the letters they wrote home, the children who survived uh, the military records, tremendously important, none of which um, mentioned their their uh, week's adventure in, in um, Dublin, but their, their, in brief, their history was uh, of the six Anzacs, we'll include the Australian just because this is a, this is a slightly ecumenical uh, gathering. We have a few trans-Tasman um, uh, contributors. Um, four of them saw service on Gallipoli. All were invalided out with a bullet wound or um, disease. The other two New Zealanders were medical orderlies on the ship Marama, the one Catholic, Fred Nevin from Christchurch, and the, probably the most interesting character, Jack Garland, the uh, Auckland um, clerk, whose family was a very prominent Methodist family, and significantly an Orangeman. So after his, um, his, uh, his return to New Zealand, he would occasionally give a lecture on my thrilling experiences in the Dublin insurrection, uh, to um, to various lodges in and around Auckland Central. Um, the, the New Zealand sources then, very, very important. The new Irish sources were critical because, as I said, for a century, Irish historians had been um, uh, sort of regretting and, and uh, slightly criticising the, the rebel leaders for their uh, inability to recognise the the centrality of this campus smack in the middle of their um, of their communication lines and in fact one of the first things the British did was to divide the rebel forces by um, establishing a series of, of fortresses uh, from the railway station Dublin Castle and Trinity and then they ignored all the rebel strongholds marched past them set up artillery and shelled the rebel headquarters in the general post office until they, uh, Pierce and um, the rebel leaders surrendered. My argument is that if you take Trinity away from the crown and give it to the rebels, they're the ones who from the commanding heights of the main West Front building um, decide who goes where in the center of Dublin. So the British ha would have had to change tactics. They would have had to have attacked from the rebel strongholds from the outside. They would then have, the remnants, have fallen back on Trinity. That was where they would make their last stand. They wouldn't surrender. The British would have, uh, would have cheerfully shelled the, the, what they would have seen as the nest of the rebels rather than this 300-year-old um, repository of culture and, and, and treasures in their library. And the, rebel, the, the, the rebels wouldn't have died there. They would not have surrendered. Fewer leaders for the British authorities to execute, but immediately the significance of what was left of Trinity would have become 
a shrine. And the new Irish state, when it was created five, six years later, it would have rebuilt not Trinity College, it would have any building or uh, establishment on the, the, the ruins of what was Trinity would arguably be Patrick Pierce University or De Valera College. And um, of course that didn't go down terribly well in 2016 when I outlined that um, argument to Trinity, but now with the book being published, it's uh, more of a game and I'm, looking forward to the the Irish reviews when they start to come in thick and fast in the course of the year when publications can um, resume. So in a sense um, uh, the story is an accidental one. These men were there on leave, on convalescent leave, on holiday. Uh, they were there uh, very simply because Dublin was the second city of the empire. It was um, um, you could get as a soldier a return trip to Dublin from London for the for a single price. It was natural to go to to Dublin. Uh, f five, uh, four out of the five um, New Zealanders had no Irish links at all. Um, only Fred Nevin's parents had come from Ireland, and they reacted as. Uh, you would expect them to. They all saw men shot dead in front of them. In fact, I'll just read from the most vivid, um, and of course, if I'm running over time, I expect to be uh, summoned back to the timetable, but the, the most vivid letter from Alexander Don, a corporal, the son, as I say, of the famous uh, missioner to the Chinese Presbyterian in Dunedin, and he writes his, uh, his father a letter on about two weeks after the events of Easter week. On Easter Monday morning, I was walking past Dublin Castle and everything seemed all right when, when a couple of shots rang out and two Tommies, soldiers, who were in front of me fell over. I thought I must be dreaming and went over to where they were lying and saw that one had got it through the head and the other through the neck. Then I looked up and saw a couple of men in green uniforms and slouch hats, rifles and bandoliers regarding me from the housetops. It was my hat that saved my life because it seemed to puzzle them, being so very like their own, although of course not green. And I speculate that it was um, uh, the, 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 re the um, New Zealand uniform that uh, Don was wearing, uh, which was a, a shade greener the territorial uniform than the regular British khaki that also might have fooled these Irish citizen army snipers into thinking that in fact uh, Don was one of their own number late for his appointment uh, at St Stephen's Green to, to begin the rising. Anyway, the letter is incredibly vivid and uh, there are four or five others like it. Essentially, these men chased into Trinity, take the lead, occupy sniping positions on the main West Front buildings overlooking College Green at the very moment at midnight that the rebels, having realized that their abortive uh, rebellion with only one rebel where they were expecting five to turn up, Trinity, they realize Trinity hasn't been captured as was intended and they launch an attack uh, uh, and, and an attempt to occupy it. So there's a three hour gun battle and the very experienced Anzacs lead the defense 
stand up there for 35, uh, 36 hours from the battlements and the pavilions and the windows of the main West Front building, returning fire for fire, and eventually the rebels call the attack off. And Trinity, they could have waltzed into Trinity. They, they, they were a, a bunch of old, unarmed porters. The, it was Easter Monday. There were no students. There was no officer training corps defense, although that was immediately and popularly believed to have been the reason that Trinity survived and escaped occupation and destruction. And that myth has, um, let's say, sort of lain there uh, for a uh, uh, hundred and so years until um, I came along and poked it with a stick. So um, I'm very happy to answer any questions, um, especially if anybody wants to purchase a copy of the book, which is $40. And I have bought in uh, anticipation of the Irish publishers not bothering about um, uh, circularizing it in New Zealand. I bought 500 copies. So uh, I'm, um, I'm very confident that uh, it's, a, it's a good read for those who um, are interested in these sorts of things. Thank you very much for that, Rory. Um, having just been to Dublin for the first time in my life, um, only last October, and spent a day at Trinity College and the Book of Kells, it's amazing to think that it could have all been destroyed. It's, it's um, interesting when I, I promoted the book uh, for about three months last year in Ireland. And um, during that time, I gave a talk to the Dublin University Trinity uh, History Society, which I used to belong to 40 years ago when I was young. And uh, there were a great bunch of, of girls and boys. And uh, my, my sort of parting line to them was, look, buy a copy of this book and read it. And you will know more about this really important aspect of Irish history than every Irish historian who hasn't bought and read a copy of the book. So if anyone says to you, oh, I knew about that, they are lying because the absolute historical orthodoxy has been that Trinity wasn't attacked or if it was attacked, it was, it, it was um, a meaningless uh, 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 affair and uh, the, the defense was conducted by its officer training corps. It, effectively, the students, the teenage students who couldn't even sort of walk straight, let alone shoot straight, by then the officer training corps was a shadowy body full of old um, retired academics and, and lawyers and um, basically teenagers who were um, to unfit. Everyone who was fit to go to fight had gone to fight. Yeah. And, um, it was just the amazing good fortune that these soldiers were, most of the Irish soldiers who came under fire and 50 uh, or so um, soldiers died uh, in the early stages of the rising, just shot dead by the rebel um, gunmen. Uh, they knew where the local barracks were. There was a dozen military barracks in and around Dublin. The colonials didn't have a clue and they were directed into Trinity. So it was incredibly fortuitous. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, let's say, very keen to have Trinity acknowledge and, uh, the, and recognize this, the, the, the sacrifice and the uh, achievement. Just one last word on sources. The New Zealand sources are discreet and interesting. The Trinity sources are very rich, but the rebel sources which have come available in the last 15 years, uh, collected in the 1930s and 40s and 50s uh, through by the Irish government through a, an organization 
organization called the Bureau of Military History, they collected all the memories of the rebel, uh, the surviving rebels who wanted to go on the record. And they also made available the military pension application files, which, which um, give much more detailed accounts of what each individual did. And what, do you, what did they reveal? We attacked Trinity. Oh, wow. You wouldn't the, expect that in those files, would absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the corroboration, corroborating evidence is there, but you needed, in a sense, like a jigsaw puzzle, you needed the New Zealand pieces to make it clear. And the most absurd reason why Irish historians have missed this incident is that the people who explained what had happened during the gun battle with the Anzacs. So when the, uh, uh, the Trinity Authority turned up late in the peace, it early, in the early hours of, the, of, of Tuesday morning, 25th of April, the exact anniversary of the landings at, at Suvla Bay and uh, Anzac Cove, at, rather at Anzac Cove, um, they said, oh, the, we've defended the Bank of Ireland because the rebels had actually occupied the, the buildings and the roofs of the buildings behind the Bank of Ireland, yep. they'd fired on Trinity and the Anzacs had presumably thought, well, here are these lads, they'd seen a lot of looting, here are these lads trying to rob the bank. So that was the story they write home. And that's the story they told to the Trinity authorities. And the newspapers, when they started publication a week or so later, they picked up and ran with that story with uh, fanciful accounts of the rebels making repeated assaults on the gates of the bank. Historians looked at that and dismissed it as nonsense. For one reason, the bank has no windows, it has no military strategic value. The other main reason is that it was the former home of the House of the Independent Irish Parliament, so it's a sacred place to the rebels. They'd no sooner attack it than the Queen would set fire to Buckingham Palace. So but historians didn't ask, well, what was behind those accounts? Yeah. And uh, ironically, yeah. the, uh, it's the Anzacs not quite getting their, um, their uh, Dublin geography right. <laughs> You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website. <laughs>